I'm hoping that nobody's feeling cheated by us offering a question period this evening rather than a formal Dharma talk. This is not idleness on our part. <laughs> but sometimes this kind, well, very often in my experience, this kind of dialogue it can be actually as productive as a Dharma talk in addressing really, uh, you know, what is up for you, what is on your, almost, what's on your mind. Uh, this evening. So, again, we will share this as we did the other day. So, does anybody have anything they would like to raise? struggle a little bit like what what's right and wrong with with that kind of interaction or not wanting that interaction I think that very few of us are in such a luxurious or privileged position in our lives where we only engage with like-minded people and um people that we feel we have good communication with and people who respect us and <laughs> all of those things. I, I suspect that that is... Anybody have that here? <laughs> <laughs> so then it is always a question of how we do relate to those people and situations which you know, can initially feel unconducive, places we would rather not be, um, people we would rather not be with. Um, and, you know, it strikes me that much of this pathway is not just seeking what is safe and comfortable, but actually looking how we live with the edges in our life. You know, the edges of difficult experience and the edges of difficult people. I find this re requires an enormous amount of patience. Uh, you know, we do often have a back, back story about how, how people should think, feel, see, view. Um, and, and to be able to actually listen, to see beneath the story, to have the patience to kind of stay with what is not necessarily pleasant, is, is a big piece of this practice, but then so is discernment and wise effort. You know, and there's a way in which if mindfulness does not engage with wise effort and discernment, its near enemy is passivity. And, you know, we talk a lot about our inner world of experience here on retreat, but of course there is an object, there is a world out there where there is much that is unacceptable. Um, because it perpetuates suffering. Where there is indeed much that is unjust that needs addressing. And this practice has never been, you know, to provide a cave that, that uh, dissociates us from the world. A lot of it is about how we engage with that world. And the qualities of discernment and wise effort are both part of mindfulness and part of compassion. 
you know, part of, you know, Gina mentioned Kuan Yin last night, this kind of representation of compassion often represented as this kind of very receptive, listening figure. If you look back through some of the history of Kuan Yin, also appears as an armed warrior, one who is really committed to saying no to the causes of suffering. So, you know, in situations of inappropriate language, bullying, intimidation, um, perpetuating suffering, uh, you know, part of this practice, which is indeed very challenging, I think, it is to find the courage of how to say no without abandoning anyone. That's a hard one. It's easy to say no with aversion and just abandon people or deny them or try to erase them, but then we become part of that paradigm of rage. Uh, How to say no out of a concern for the well-being of our world, the concern for the well-being of all beings, but also knowing that the person we're saying no to they are not their story either, just as we are not our story. That would be my first stab at that question, which I didn't repeat, but I hope you got the gist of the question. Did you? So I'll just uh, repeat, if I can get the, the gist of the query there, thank you, um, that uh, in, in working with um, the, the second foundation, Vedana, the feeling tone, that there's an uh, invitation to actually notice what the experience is like in the body and um, how that might work. Um, from what you're describing, it sounds like really good sort of interest investigation to see what is it actually like. One might assume that t- putting one's foot on the grass might be pleasurable, but it sounds like your experience was that it, it wasn't. It was unpleasant. It's interesting to note for myself hearing you that the word you used was negative. It's like we immediately take unpleasant and make it bad. The association is so quick for us. And that actually is part of where we get caught in it. Um, with that, to notice that there's unpleasant as an experience that's part of you know, I don't know if it's a third, it's, it's one of the three options. Um, and then there's the sense of aversion to that, which is not the same as the unpleasantness. They, they arise very closely together and conditioned by each other, but they're not the same. And so if aversion arises to the unpleasant, then actually bringing your attention to your body and feeling, what does the aversion feel like? So rather than just being with the unpleasant sensation of grass touching the sole of my foot, it's actually noticing, oh, there's aversion to it. And that might actually feel quite different. It might also be unpleasant. In fact, it's highly likely it would be. But it's to notice that so that in therefore experiencing consciously the aversion, one is not so likely to be unconsciously enacting it in the way one's paying attention to the unpleasant experience. It's not required that one be feeling something. There might be something else going on, but it's not there's something else you have to look for there necessarily. I was relating it to larger um, emotions, anger or Mm -hmm. sadness. 
Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you were getting at that on a smaller scale. Or yeah. Similarly, with, with an unpleasant or difficult emotion, and they're difficult usually because there's an unpleasant element to them, and with anger it can be extremely unpleasant to experience it, that the tendency is to go into the story about and why I'm angry, what I'm going to do about it, and da da And if one brings the attention back and feels, oh, actually, this is what it's like in here, then if we can make peace with or make space for that experience, there's less pressure to have to do something with the anger or about the cause of the anger as we have conceived it. And so, yes, that's an example of where there might be an unpleasant experience to notice anger is unpleasant in itself, generally. And it's usually in response to or reaction to something else that's unpleasant. It's very rare that I experience myself getting angry about something that's pleasurable. (laughs) You know, it just doesn't seem to happen. And, of course, anger is an expression of aversion. And seeing that aversion arises out of an unconscious relationship to the unpleasant. When we make it conscious, we have the possibility to contemplate it and to see the possibility of equanimity of, oh, actually, this is unpleasant. Unpleasant things are part of our experience. Maybe it's okay just to be here with this. It's very important not to mistake Vedana for emotion. Yeah. Emotion actually really lies in the third foundation of mindfulness. And when we speak about Vedana, we're speaking about something pre-verbal. It's just the very taste of experience in perception. So it's, it's often quite difficult for people to get that sense, you know, that it's, it's just how perception is landing in a taste of being pleasant or unpleasant or neither. The same perception can have a different Vedana tone in different moments. So it's not, it's a very small number of perception or or sensory phenomena, we would say, that have an implicit Vedana tone. Vedana is very frequently going through the lens of perception and association. So it's very much pre-verbal. It's that first taste. So it's something both extraordinarily simple and something that opens up a lot of questions about how we experience and codify and categorize the world. Yes. The question is about um, dealing with one's children with unpleasant uh, feeling tones. For instance, if the eight-year-old says, I'm bored, what's the best way of working with that or helping them to work with unpleasant, sustaining um, some sense of balance through? I may be making more of your question than... Saying, well, I, saying more about it. I think that's right. I mean, you know, we can distract them and entertain them, yeah. but that's not helping them sit with Well, you know, I think part of it is that if you look at what's happening in our culture, um, I notice that the way many parents deal with children now is if there's a, um, if there's a moment of boredom, 
they're put in front of a television or something is done to distract them. So there's a, there's a definite message that boredom is not a good thing. I was, uh, I was in Jamaica a couple of years ago and there was this lovely family, um, a mom and dad and three little boys. And we were sitting at the restaurant, at, which was absolutely beautiful scenery. The beach and the palm trees and just gorgeous and the blue sky and white sand. You get the picture. And we're all at breakfast and the mom and dad were sitting there reading the newspaper and the children were, each, each one had an iPad or its equivalent. And the kids were, they were this big. And I thought, well, look at that, right? So there's a, there's a message there that um, the mind should be engaged in something external all the time. So I, I think what I notice, and I have nine grandchildren, so I've, I also get the opportunity to watch it happening again that if you are, um, how you, the messages that you give implicitly about how to work with mind states may have something to do with how we meet those kinds of complaints of boredom. So one way of working with that is to engage the child. You know, so just what, what would you ask yourself if you felt boredom arising? How would you engage with it yourself? Probably find something to do. There you go. <laughs> so why would the child do anything else, right? But if we start, if you are working uh, yourself with um, your own mind states and engaging with them, boredom included, then that's the message the child will get, that there's some other way of working with it other than complaining about the boredom and having to be provided some kind of entertainment that distracts from the boredom. Um, you know, so I, I think to be careful of our implicit messages to children rather than trying to meet those kinds of situations as um, standalone or independent from all of the other messages that we give them. They're really smart, right? And they clock us, really. You know, they, they notice things, as you know, um, that we don't even realize we're doing, right? So I think that that's, for, that's for me, the, the way of working with, with really clever and intelligent little human beings who are very observant and um, know, know uh, clearly the messages that you're giving them and will respond accordingly. So if you can engage with the child, um, how, how, you know, to really kind of ascertain how you, you know, what's it like? What's it like for you when you're bored? Just in the same way you would engage your own mind. What's it like to be bored? Right? Rather than trying to find a distracting activity, what's it like to be bored? You start to investigate yourself so you can do that, that kind of investigation externally with your children. I think that that's how I deal with it. I would certainly never want to set myself up as a parenting guru because I, I wish people had all the right answers. But it's a very deep sense of concern for children today. I mean, I've read these studies on boredom and how many kind of social scientists link boredom as a mental state to a lot of kind of like really unhelpful behaviors. Um, 
because the need for excitement to get bigger and bigger, because the mind gets so jaded and desensitized, actually. And, you know, this is as true in the adult world, I think, as in the world of children. And we cannot blame parents. I'm very mindful of the extraordinary pressures many parents are under today to raise children and yet also to have our livelihoods, the amount of demands that I put on their time. So I think it is, it is a, you know, it's a social issue. It's, a, it's not just a family issue. It's an issue of our culture and values. And, you know, many parents don't feel that they have many choices except to sit their kids in front of the TV. It's either that or they're not going to get dinner. Um, you know, so many people in our world are really caught between a rock and a hard place. And it's kind of like nobody's fault. It's almost a collective collusion in, in stretching people beyond edges, I would say. I think it helps to learn where we can encourage sensitivity in our children rather than desensitize them. And I think over my own sense is that overexposure, you know, to sit a child in front for overexposure to media, to, to blah, 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 all that whole stream of things can have an effect of desensitizing children so that they are deprived of inner resources. And I think we see in our own lives when we're deprived of inner resources, of interest, curiosity, that is when boredom mostly hits us as a mind state. And that's when we most feel the compelling need to do something with it. So I think often the best that parents can do is to take care of the, 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 the support of curiosity, the support of interest, the support of engagement with the world rather than the retreat into disengagement, which I think is very, has a difficult effect on young people. Not the response. Vedana is the first sensory impression. Vedana is a trigger. That's how we have to look at Vedana. Vedana is that first sensory impression. Stroke the back of your hand. Just sensation of pleasantness. It doesn't, before, before you even form the, what, it, what it is, what it is, pinch the back of your hand. It's unpleasant. Look at the other hand, it might actually be neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Okay? So it's that, that kind of core. The reason why it is given such uh, value and emphasis in uh, insight practice is that that first impression is a trigger in the absence of mindfulness. Huh? It sets off a domino effect. So what Vedana actually is, if we think about, think about this simple formula. Upon contact, there is feeling, what we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. 
what we think about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. So contact is just that basic meeting of the sense door, the sensory information, and the seeing or the hearing or the sensing or the tasting or the touching. Now, Vedana is what is appearing at that point of contact. Even perception is coming on top of that. That's the wind, that's the sun, that's a bird. The perception and the Vedana combined are opening the doorway to the underlying tendencies, the world of associations, the tendency then to react, to begin to proliferate, to cling to, to become the shape of the mind. So it's that very core. The the, the reactions and responses are coming along on the footsteps or even inbuilt of the perceptions. I don't practice all over the world, but I don't teach all over the world, but I teach across America. And uh, I think the concerns are pretty much the same. The responses to those concerns may be different according to different cultures and uh, different populations. And some of the concerns in different segments of the population may be different. Um, nevertheless, there is a common humanity that we all share. And uh, I always love the fact that the Dalai Lama, no matter what kind of um, teaching he's giving, always starts, as far as I've noticed, with everyone wants to be happy and no one wants to suffer. Now, that's speaking to the commonality of our human um, dilemmas. However, depending on your culture, your class, your race, your socioeconomic status, the concerns may be different, right? So if you're um, really struggling to feed your family and don't know where, where you'll find a job, um, those are pretty basic needs, and uh, that will probably be your primary concern. Um, if those needs are taken care of, uh, you know, and, and I, I suppose I'm going a little bit into Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I, th- I think so. So, depending on you know each need being taken care of, we we move to the next level, but uh, I think that there is a commonality among all of the people that I meet across the country, uh, a concern for the uh, direction of our culture, uh, a concern for the ramped up hatred and vengeance that seems to be coloring so much of our, um, our country the polarization and the political polarization that seems to be producing a tremendous amount of hatred and um, very, very, very unwholesome speech. And um, the, uh, the effects on different communities, I think, uh, may vary. Uh, nevertheless, I think that um, people who are interested in dharma are interested in uh, how we relate to each other and how much we can um, operate from the sense of community and commonality and interconnectedness and interdependence. Um, and and I, th- I think across the country it, it's, 
it's more and more so because the situation seems to be getting uh, more and more dire in terms of how we speak to each other, how we speak about each other, um, how we all decide together how to meet the needs, the very basic needs that um, we all have as human beings without excluding anyone. Uh, and, and I think um, good folks all over the country recognize those difficulties and are concerned with them. And I think that could be said for the various countries around the world equally. So just again repeating the uh, observation being expressed there of in attending to the, the feeling tone, the Vedana, that the tendency is to pick up on the unpleasant or the pleasant and not often actually tuning into the neither pleasant or unpleasant and actually neutral is a more convenient way to say it but technically it translates as neither of those to other two. Um, and I think that's actually a very significant thing to notice because we're sort of wired up um, physiologically, psychologically, to tune in to the pleasant and the unpleasant. It's like what we seeking, you know, food and sort of all the sort of essential things we want are somehow associated with pleasant. And danger, threat, harm is associated with unpleasant. And so at a very biological survival level, we're wired up to be interested in the pleasant and the unpleasant. And we, it seems wired up to be uninterested in the neutral because it's not offering us anything, it's not doing anything to us. And so it actually takes a conscious intentionality to notice that, in fact, there's so many things that are neutral going on every moment. But if we're only drawn into the pleasant, unpleasant, we don't notice them. So I think it's really just the intention to see, to ask the question, oh, what's here right now that's neutral? You know, sometimes I put my foot on the ground, it's pleasant. Sometimes it's unpleasant. If it's neutral, I've probably started thinking of something else before I've even registered as neutral because the habit is so quick to move away from the neutral to something else. To look for some either something that's going to give me something or what the problem is I can fix. So the neutral gives much less traction for the sense of self to get into engage with some to engage with some meaningful activity. Because the self is always concerned with getting the pleasant, getting rid of the unpleasant. And the neutral, what's that? And there's a kind of a delusion in that, which it's really important to start to transform by noticing, oh, actually, as we've said, you know, lots of what's happening is just that, neutral. But it doesn't draw our attention. So it's your intentionality there is really what makes the difference, the intention to notice it, to say, oh, what's that? Is that here? And if I asked you now, can you notice something neutral right now? Huh? Neutral, okay. Anything else? Yes, you know, sometimes what happens is when I try to do that is that I, I, I turn it into either pleasant or unpleasant. Well, it's kind of a nice temperature, so I guess it's pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or I, a flower's nice, but its leaf is broken, so it's kind of
I think that that in itself is a useful investigation. Because very often we, we do go through life labeling our sensory impressions, categorizing them, and just assuming that to be the totality of it. You know, to say something is pleasant goes through quickly in our mind right away to that's good, that's great, something unpleasant is terrible. It's, it, and actually, when we look at things more closely, many, many sensory impressions are mixtures pleasant and unpleasant, the words really don't, don't apply to actually categorize things as one way or another. I, mean, I do think this is really an important investigation because the underlying tendency around that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant is said to be delusion or confusion. It's when we dissociate. It becomes a trigger for craving. Something's missing. I'm going to make something happen. Um, You actually, uh, I mean, that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant is basically that which is not shouting at us. If you really widen your sense, your your sense doors in this room, a lot of it's falling in that category. The the ceiling tires. (laughs) The clock. The glass. None of it's really shouting at us. But what is very interesting is when you actually have the intention to pay attention, you actually see very little stays, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It might not shout at you. It's not turned into something pleasant or something unpleasant. But what you do notice is the actual Vedana tone of mindfulness is actually quite pleasant. And you don't need things to shout at you. Because it carries that quality of interest, the quality of intentionality, the quality of being present, the quality of being connected. And there is something about that which I think has you know, fairly major implications in our lives. To seek, seek being present rather than dissociation in the face of that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And, and I think what you're saying, Christina, is that in that pleasant vedna of mindfulness, that as soon as we bring attention to something that's neutral, it kind of brightens it, right? That, that the very attention makes, this, makes that object brighter, in our, even whether it's an, a physical object or a mental object or an, or an emotional object. Still, it makes it brighter in our awareness so that we'll notice also, you know, when we talk about Vedana sometimes, there may be a tendency to think that, you know, the quality of Vedana that we're experiencing kind of inheres in the object. But actually, it is a moving, changing, shifting thing. So, you know, the, the example I like to use is the bell. You know, if you're sitting on your cushion saying, Ring the bell, ring the bell, ring the bell, ring the bell, ring the bell. And the bell rings. It's a very pleasant perception. <laughs> but if you're having this amazing sit, and you could just sit there for however long, and the bell rings, it may not be so pleasant. So something that may be neutral, really, you know, the sound of the bell, can be pleasant or unpleasant from moment to moment to moment, depending on you know, the, the rest of the, um, the field that's happening. And so I think partly what's, what's wonderful about bringing attention to it is really seeing the changing nature of that too, that it is arising in every moment with every sense contact.
focus off of making sure that I, um, my foot lands okay and I'm not going to tip over. Um, I, I start to get very wobbly and almost tip over. So the question is around slow walking, inducing a kind of sense of imbalance or unsteadiness. Um, you probably notice we, uh, we have not actually really promoted very slow walking here. Uh, I mean, you can, there's absolutely no reason, I mean, find a pace that works for you. I think what's really important is that you have a path. The pace is not important. The path is. I think it's the path that lends a certain kind of sense of container and, and structure around the walking period. But the pace is really quite inconsequential in many ways. And, you know, some, for some people it works to walk quite slowly. Some people walk quite slowly and it's a kind of trance, you know, and they'd be better off working, walking more quickly. But certainly if walking slowly induces any sense of imbalance, it's definitely better to walk more quickly. And, um, you know, it's no reduction in mindfulness. That's what's important to recognize. Yes, that belongs to a particular style of practice, um, a particular Burmese style of practice. You, you go to other areas in Asia, you know, like you go to Sri Lanka, people are just walking up and down with a big smile on their face. <laughs> I, I mean, they have a walking path, you know, they have a walking path. They're not, they're not phased out, you know, or all over the place. They're just walking up and down with a big smile on their face. You know, how, you know, maybe slight, slightly reduced from ordinary walking, but hardly any at all. You know, and they're just walking up and down, being in the body. So it, it's good to acknowledge those different styles, you know, and to to not feel like there's kind of like this one way. Um, you know, and also, I mean, just on the level of being responsive to your own body. I mean, all of us are going to have to make adjustments over years to how our bodies change and how we practice, you know. One day we will all be up here, possibly on chairs or on stretchers or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll come in with our walkers, you know, and, and, and we would just have to make adjustments to how things are, you know. It's not like this practice is designated for you know, youthful, fit, healthy bodies, and once you lose that, you're kind of out of the picture, you know. I mean, this is a practice of contemplating amidst aging, sickness, and death, and all the rest of it, you know. Well, try not to come in our coffins, because that wouldn't be very, probably, limited instructiveness for you. But making the adjustments that are necessary, I can't even tell you how many people I see, you know, they have to move to a chair and it's kind of like loss of meditator identity. <laughs> seriously, seriously, it's like, oh, you know, I'm not sure I really practice anymore. <laughs> but I could understand it. I can understand it because, you know, you, you get familiarized in a certain posture, you get accustomed to it, and then your body says you need to shift. And, you know, and then you're shifting and you're thinking, well, I have to start anew here. Well, good news. Good news. I have to start anew here and figure out how to do this with this body as it is right now. And actually, you know, some of that kind of uh, loss of identity, loss of meditator identity is kind of showing us how we're sort of clinging to a particular form to be an assertion of our worth as a yogi. Uh, you know, uh, but I see people really struggle with it and I understand it. But I think, you know, the good news is we start again in the body as it is right now and we adapt to, to what's needed. Um, if we only practiced, you know, in healthy, young, perfect bodies, in only good moments in our life when everything was fine, you know, and everybody loved us and we, we have no unpleasant sensations, uh, it's a pretty limited field. Can I make a suggestion as to what I... And being of the slow walking school, um, if you if you feel as if you're losing and you you know you feel as if that's 
helpful and supportive and, and um, onward leading for you. Um, and you're feeling as if you're going out of balance when you're, when you're moving. Just make your steps smaller. So if you're trying to go to, you know, you're making the, the steps really large, that tends to throw you off balance. But if you keep them really small, that will help. Also good training for old age. Yeah. <laughs> Shuffling. <laughs> but I realized, I realized um, Christina, that um, there's now a new uh, um, designation. It's Lomi, loss of meditator identity. <laughs> Lomi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
generally arises when we've already assumed, or when we've assumed we already know what's going on here, what it is to be what we are at one level, we could say. But even just that, oh, I know what a breath is. Why should I be interested in it? Um, when we can cultivate more a sense of, of mystery, of the unknowable, unfathomable, unfathomableness of experience, at one level, it kind of calls a natural sense of curiosity and interest that I find um, you know, very beautifully modeled in young children. When encountering something for the first time, you, you see that you know, they don't know what it is, but they're interested in a way that's, that's very much drawn um, to pay attention. And uh, like, like encountering a beetle or something is the classic sort of thing, a, a young child looking at a beetle. And if I look at it and think, it's a beetle, I know what it is, why should I bother paying any more attention? But I thought, oh my gosh, how does that thing move? How does it breathe? They don't have lungs. You know, beetles don't have lungs? Sorry, I could go on with that. But it's like, we, there's so much about what's happening that we do not know, that we do not understand, that we're not actually closely in contact with because we're referring to experience through our concepts and our ideas about it. And so far as we're doing that, we're actually distanced from and potentially disconnected from actually the vibrant vitality of encountering something that's alive and being alive in that encounter. And, um, you know, it has some relationship to what we were speaking of, or I think Christina was speaking to before with, with children and the whole, in a way, the engagement with media, which is, it's always, it's an interface which is between a child or an adult and something that's actually real. And, and something about getting more directly in contact with immediacy that can't be known in advance. And any time we're not interested, we're making some massive assumptions that we know what's happening. If you go into a situation where you don't know, where you're unfamiliar, we're immediately mindful. If you put your foot down in a place and you don't know what's under your foot, if it's a bare foot and it's dark, try being unmindful. You're not going to do it. You're going to be interested. To, I want to know what's under my foot when it goes down there. But if I can look and see, oh, it's flat, it's clear, it's clean, bang, I'll put it down mindlessly. Don't need to be interested. It's fine. So that's, a, I think, a very important contemplation in this context of where interest comes from. There is a tendency, I think, to make something really very complex and mystical and transcendent about emptiness. From the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, the understanding of emptiness is perfectly obvious to all of us, if we look carefully. So it's not pursued as some kind of... It, it is simply acknowledging that there is no thing that has any independent self-existence. That's simple. That there is no thing that has any independent self-existence. This includes the body that we're contemplating, the breath that we're contemplating, the vedanas that we contemplate, the sounds that arise, the emotions that arise, the idea of me that arises, that there is no thing that has any independent self-existence. This was the second teaching that the Buddha gave. He didn't reserve this for particularly old or brilliant, experienced students. For In terms of, of his understanding, this was as obvious as saying the walls are white. We try, there's a tendency to, to over, overcook this notion. 
and, and to, it is certainly a very profound insight with incredibly profound implications in our lives um, because it is an insight that is extremely transformative. But it's an insight that runs through the whole of the practice right from the beginning. You know, this is a practice of non-clinging, of not making something out of process. Out of process and conditions. So this is what we do through the whole of the path. We learn not to make something out of an unfolding mandala of process and conditions. And in Buddhist teaching, although you know that you could, you know, there's a million books written on emptiness, it's very easy to perceive some kind of state, some kind of experience. It's really what the Buddha was talking about: is is seeing free from delusion and confusion, moment to moment, the way things actually are. Um, so, well, I would want to say about emptiness. I think it's sort of. <laughs> That was a short version. <laughs> Don't think this is something reserved for, you know, like, like some, uh, you're going to get this in 50 lifetimes as a meditator. You know. The Buddha asks you, look at the cushion in front of you and see whether it has any independent self-existence. And you find that it doesn't. You know, and, and then science doesn't disagree with this. You know, nothing disagrees with this. It's obvious, isn't it? It looks like a cushion, and that's wonderful. It has a name, so I know where to sit. In a, but, but that should not be mistaken for believing this has some sort of independent self-existence. This is process and conditions. It's not moving as fast as some things do, but, you know, come, ba <laughs> come back in 50 years, and this cushion will be fertilizing the garden. You know, and turning into some other part. So th this is like, this is just like, let's, let's not make too much of emptiness. Transformative, profoundly transformative to, to live aligned with that understanding because basically that means no, no clinging anywhere. You know, no self-making anywhere. But please don't make it something really esoteric because just look at the cushion and see that it is empty of independent self-existence. Okay, so we have uh, half an hour for some walking, and then we'll come back. And um, we did, I did ask uh, Sage to leave a note on the board that some of you who have work periods during this time, you should feel not to hurry, and that it's fine to come quietly into the sitting when you're done. And I think Gina's going to again offer the... Uh, Meta chant this evening towards the end of the sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.